as Chris says, the reading is taken from Acts chapter 3. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave him his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do I have, what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement of what had happened to him. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in a place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us if, as if by our own power of godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled that he had foretold through all the prophets, seeing that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, Lord, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days, and you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offering, offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. I want to begin with a question. How many times do you think you have heard the phrase, oh man, I need a break? Especially, well, especially in recent times, easy, especially in recent times when a lot of plans have had to be cancelled. It, it really feels sometimes like life can be a bit of a treadmill. At a low point in my past, someone once asked me, 
how are you, Dave? And I forgot for a moment that I was English and that the suitable reply to that question is, of course, I'm fine, thank you, how are you? And in a moment without thinking, I said, life is unrelentingly rubbish at the moment. <laughs> Isn't that how life feels sometimes? Just unrelenting. It leaves most of us with this deeply unfulfilled feeling for a want for rest and refreshment. Now, advertising campaigns sometimes are able to tap into this desire that we have. The ones that do it really well are mattress adverts. Here's a picture from one mattress advert. You can't see it very well, but I mean, who, whoever wakes up like that, it's ridiculous. The warm morning sun glow on your face as you gently wake up and sit up smugly smiling to yourself. God, oh, what a wonderful night's sleep. I feel so refreshed. I don't think I've ever woken up like that. When my alarm goes off, most of the time, I feel like I'm being pulled out of a coma. It takes me a few moments to work out what day it is, and then it slowly dawns on me that my alarm going off was not some horrible mistake. I actually need to get out of bed. Now, I want to feel like that when I wake up, but the truth is I often wake up looking a lot more like that. <laughs> <laughs> we've all got this deep desire for feeling refreshed and here's a spoiler alert for you a new mattress may well mean you sleep better but it is not going to meet that deep desire for true refreshment as we look at today's passage in Acts chapter 3 we'll see that the thing that's standing between us and true refreshment is our sin and that until we find a solution which deals with that problem, we're going to end up feeling even more frustrated. We're going to be looking at today's passage under four headings. The miracle, the real problem, the solution, and the refreshment. I noticed this morning that makes an anagram of Mrs. R, which was obviously my wife, so... <laughs> Must be a reason I picked those titles. Um, so point one, the miracle. This chapter begins with Peter and John going up to the temple. And in verse two, it says, they see a man who was lame from birth being carried to the temple gate. Now, as Peter and John, uh, two of Jesus' disciples, are entering the temple, he asks them for money. Peter doesn't just tap his pockets and say, oh, I'm really sorry, mate, I haven't got any change. Instead, he says, look at me. The man, full of anticipation of what's about to happen, looks up probably hoping to see something very expensive being pulled from Peter's tunic. He was hoping to receive something good. He had no idea that actually he was going to receive something truly incredible. Read with me from verse 6. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have. What I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. This is a miracle. A man who had been disabled from birth not only stands, but he walks and he jumps. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, he is healed. 
This is the first miracle that is recorded in the book of Acts, and it's the first of many. So it seems like a suitable point just to stop, uh, stop slowly. Sorry, I'll try and get my words out. Try and pause briefly and see what the Bible has to teach us about the importance of miracles. Now, the first thing to acknowledge is that this is a divisive topic. At one extreme, there are those who find the whole thing about miracles a little bit over the top. There are Christians who blush when we talk about miracles because in today's modern world, there's just no need or no place for these ancient folk tales which seem to have got out of hand. At the other extreme are those who have not only disproportionately emphasised miracles, but they've made money out of them as well white-suited TV Christian celebrities in private jets. Is there any middle ground between these two groups? Well, I think there is, and I'm going to try and skim the surface of what the Bible says about miracles for you this morning with three points. Firstly, miracles are not equally spread throughout the whole Bible. Now, in one sense, all of life is a miracle. But on certain occasions, God acts in a way which defies our normal understanding of how things work. For instance, when he heals someone who has been disabled from birth, like in our passage today. We might call these an extraordinary intervention by God. Now, when we consider the full history of God's people, we might assume that they'd be full of these interventions. But actually, it's helpful to point out that's not necessarily the case. You see, there are certain points in the history of God's people where these extraordinary acts appear in greater concentration. There are then long periods where they seem like very few, very few at all. The book of Exodus provides a great example of this. The introduction briefly talks about a 400-year period in Israel's history where there is no mention of anything miraculous. But then the period where God rescues his people from Egypt, miracles come thick and fast. By the same logic, we would be right to expect that the most important period in the history of God's people, the life, death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus, would be a time where we would see more miracles than at other times. Now I want to be clear, this does not mean that God is unable to act miraculously today. I wholeheartedly believe that God is just as powerful today as he has ever been throughout Israel's history. He still heals, he still intervenes in extraordinary ways. My point is that we need to acknowledge there are certain periods in the church's history, in the Bible's history, where miracles are more common and the time recorded in the book of Acts is one of those times. The second thing I want to point out about miracles is miracles are signs. In the next chapter of Acts, the religious leaders are talking about that what this man uh, about this man being healed. And in cha- chapter four, verse sixteen, they say everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign. The Bible describes events like this healing as signs and wonders. Now, we are right to wonder at these things, but we must also acknowledge that they are signs. A good sign should draw your attention. (coughs) Excuse me. But it's not supposed to keep it. It's supposed to point you to something else. The same is true of healing miracles. They are there to point us to something even greater. 
the source of the miracle, to Jesus. As a crowd gathers in this passage in amazement at what has just happened, look at Peter's response in verse 12. Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? And then he continues a few verses later in verse 16. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man who you see, who you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and faith that comes through him that completely healed him. Be amazed that God is able to physically heal the sick, but be even more amazed that he is able to spiritually raise the dead. When we consider the, the miracles in the Bible, or even today, the key question we need to ask is, does this miracle point me to Jesus, or does it distract us from him? We sometimes think of miracles as going against the natural order. The truth is, though, miracles don't go against the natural order. They are a glimpse of what is truly natural, a glimpse of what is in store for those who put their trust in Jesus. They are a sign pointing to Jesus, providing a partial picture of what one day he will fully bring about. This man was given a taste of the refreshment that God's people will one day all experience as they trust in Jesus. Thirdly, God always acts for his glory and his people's good. Now I am very aware this morning that this topic is not a theoretical issue for many of you. I want to say again that I wholeheartedly believe that God is still able to heal today and I believe it's the right thing to do to ask him to heal people. However, I think we have to acknowledge that sometimes God has other plans. The promise of this passage is not that God will physically heal all his people now. It is that if we repent and trust in Jesus, we will all know perfect health, perfect rest and refreshment forever in the age to come. God healing someone is a great sign but sometimes he chooses to use other signs. Sometimes he chooses to use broken people trusting in him, even in the hardest of situations. People who trust Jesus even beyond the grave and people who know that one day Jesus will heal all his people more completely than we could ever imagine. If that's a struggle you're facing this morning, Hear and be encouraged by these words from Charles Spurgeon. Christian, if thou art in a night of trial, think of the morrow. Cheer up thy heart with the thought of the coming of thy Lord. It may be all dark now, but it will soon be light. It may be all trial now, but it will soon be all happiness, because weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. One of the things that really struck me about this passage is that the disabled man thinks he knows what he wants from Peter and John. In his mind, his problem is he is poor, so he asks them for money. Peter reminds him that he has a deeper problem. As a crowd gathers in response to what's happened, Peter preaches to them and he is quick to point them to their deeper problem. 
That's our second point, their real problem, or our real problem. He begins, Peter begins by pointing their amazement away from him and John and towards God. But then he goes for the jugular. He tells them that as foretold by the prophets, God sent his own son as a saviour, but they killed him. In verse 15, he says, you killed the author of life. There's no higher accusation that you could bring against someone. Whatever problems they think they had, their real problem, their greatest problem, was their sin. This healing showed them that despite the fact that they had killed Jesus, God the Father had raised him in power and Jesus is now reigning in heaven and still able to do miracles. It was to show them what an awful thing that they had done. Now we may listen to that and agree, yes, to kill the author of life sounds like a very serious thing. I'm glad I haven't done anything like that. Now we may not have been there crying out for Jesus to be crucified, but deep in our hearts is a desire that we were in charge instead of God. We tend to think of sin as just rule breaking, which it partly is, but behind that rule breaking is a heart that has turned in on itself. Sin is putting ourselves above God. Now it's right and natural that the author of life should stand above what he has created. But we not only ignore God, we actively refuse, we actively refuse to acknowledge and obey him as our creator and our Lord. Sin is not just rule breaking, it's defiance an arrogance and a desire to be equal with God. Ultimately, a desire that God were dead. We may not have been there cheering on for Jesus' death, but we share the same root problem that the people who were had. We are sinful. Our greatest problem is that we have sinned against the author of life. And until that problem is addressed, we will never experience the rest and refreshment that we desire so much. So we've identified the problem. The question now must be then, point three, what is the solution? Well, verse 19 gives us the answer. Peter says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. We've all turned our backs on God. Peter's solution is very simple. Repent and turn to God. There are two groups of people who need to hear that this morning. The first are those who have never repented. You need to know that the greatest problem in your life right now is your sin. Because no matter what else you go on to achieve in your life, no matter how much you enjoy your life, the day is coming when you will have to stand before God and give account for the way that you have lived your life. If your whole life has effectively said, I don't want anything to do with you, God, then ultimately he will give us what we have asked for. Now you might think, that sounds okay. I didn't really want God to be part of my life anyway. But what we must realise is that anything good that we have in our lives, anything in our lives that brings us pleasure or enjoyment, is a gift from God. And when we shut him out of our lives completely, all those gifts will be gone. Life without God is worse than anything we could ever imagine. 
The, the Bible describes it in terms of utter despair and utter darkness. It's worse than anything you can imagine. The only way to avoid that outcome is to repent and to turn to God. Don't wait until it's too late. The second group who need to hear that this morning are those who have already repented and turned to God. Because here's the thing, repentance and turning to God is not a one-off thing that you did in the past. It is a daily battle, an ongoing war. When we truly repent of our sins and trust in God, turn to him, then something changes forever. God declares us right before him. We are forgiven and adopted. In that moment, a person is saved from death, which is the penalty of sin. But until we die or Christ returns, we still live under the power of sin. That's what is often referred to as the already but not yet nature of salvation. You see, sin wants to enslave us. It wants to damage our relationship with God. It wants to steal our ultimate joy. It wants to get in the way of our relationship with God. So we must fight against it. Becoming a Christian means waging an ongoing war against the power of sin. I'm sure you've all heard of people who've decided that a normal pet is not enough for them. They want to get something a little bit more exotic. So they go out and they come back with something like a tiger cub. They come home and it's all little and fluffy and cute and very nice. But we all know what's going to happen. As they continue to feed this little cub, it's going to grow. And there will be a day that comes when it reminds them that it is not a pet. It is a 150 kilogram apex predator and it is hungry. <laughs> we often treat our sin in the same way. Oh, it's not that bad. It's really more of a habit than a sin. Well, if you treat your sin like that, eventually it is going to show itself what it truly is. In the first book of the Bible, Genesis, God warns Cain, who is Adam and Eve's son, what sin is like. He says this in chapter 4, verse 7 of Genesis, Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Cain chooses to ignore God's warning, and he doesn't fight against sin. And it means that what he thinks is the small sin of jealousy grows into hatred and eventually into murder. A failure to fight sin led the third person who ever lived on the earth killing the fourth person who ever lived on the earth. It's not exactly a promising start for the rest of us, is it? The theologian John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Christian, are you involved? Are you invested in a lifelong battle against sin? Are you going to extreme measures to root it out of your life? Above all, sin is deceptive. It whispers that it will bring pleasures and enjoyment. It tells you it will deliver the refreshment that we all so earnestly seek. But the truth is that... <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> the truth is that it wants to drive you from Jesus, the actual source of true refreshment. 
From the beginning, Satan's lie has been God is a killjoy. The Bible shows us again and again that he calls us to repent and turn to him, not because he's trying to keep something good from us, but because he wants to give us the very best thing you could ever imagine, a relationship with the author of life. Look at verse 26 at the end of the chapter. Why does he want us to turn from sin? Not to be a killjoy, but to bless us. Peter is not pointing us to the seriousness of our sin so that we would wallow in self-pity. He wants us to see how amazing Jesus is as a saviour. Because until we see the bitterness of our sin, we will never really grasp the sweetness of our saviour. The most Christ-like people I know are the ones who recognise they are nothing like Christ. So we've considered the miracle, we've considered the real problem and the solution. Let's finish by looking at the refreshment. (coughs) Now I've got a friend who went through a really rough patch a few years back. I told him about my faith many times before and he just wasn't interested days he heard that message differently over several months he seemed to put his trust in Jesus sadly though fast forward a few uh, fast forward about a year and any faith he seemed to have was completely gone I asked him what happened and he explained that when he was in a bad place it felt like Jesus brought him something that he needed but now he felt much better And Christianity just felt like something else in his life that was asking something of him. He already felt like he was too thinly spread and he didn't need or want something else that felt like a burden. I have to say sometimes I've felt the same in my Christian walk. When life feels full and I feel thinly spread, I feel like reading my Bible and praying and fighting against sin, it all just feels like an added burden. I already feel like I can't cope and the answer I seem to be hearing is do more stuff. That feels like the opposite of what I want. What I want is rest and refreshment. Well, the good news is that that's where this passage is pointing us to. In verse 19, we see the reason that Peter calls us to repent and turn back to Jesus so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. At the heart of this passage, we find a God who refreshes, a God who knows better than us what we really need. This morning, I have one job as a preacher, and that is to point you to the one who brings refreshment, to help you see that Christ doesn't come to give you an extra burden, but to take your burden from you. Because Christ is the only one who can deal with your real problem. The problem that stands between you and true refreshment, your sin. On the cross, Christ bore the burden and punishment of our sin so that we could be forgiven, so that we could know him and so that we could truly be refreshed. (coughs) Because that's the thing that you were made for, relationship with the author of life. Perhaps this morning you feel utterly defeated by sin. Can I encourage you to lift your eyes to Jesus? 
to see that your salvation is not based upon your ability to stop yourself from sinning. If that were true, none of us would have any hope. Instead, it is based upon Jesus dying in your place to wipe away the record of your sin. In in the security that this brings, fight sin with all your strength. Turn towards Jesus and see that he is better and more beautiful than anything else in this world. Stop settling for partial temporary refreshment and come to the one who promises refreshment that will never end refreshment that is real because it comes from the only one who is able to address your deepest need the need for your sins to be dealt with if you're at the end of yourself this morning then come to Jesus and see him as the one who brings refreshment